This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks. This is episode number 245, and it's about the War of the Prophets. Yes, indeed. But I am one of your hosts, Bruce Gibson, and with me from far away, not sitting directly across from me, it looks like it because I'm looking at you on a monitor, but it's Dan Gunther that I see on my monitor. How are you doing, Dan? Hey, Bruce. Doing pretty well. I don't know. I'm, I don't feel like I'm from far away. I'm pretty close to where I am. So I, I don't know. It doesn't feel far away to me. <laughs> well, how do, what does it feel like? Does it feel like I'm there with you or does it feel like I'm far away? I don't, I don't know, man. This is getting really philosophical. Like you're right here in my ear, but I guess you are pretty far away. Far out, man. Wow. Far out. Groovy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are the official Star Trek books and comics podcast of Trek FM. So we thank you for joining us. And that's what we're going to talk about is some comics and some books. So we're going to go right into the news and we're going to look at the cover for a new TNG novel coming out in March of 2019. And is that March or April? Uh, April, April. I believe. Yeah. Beginning of April. Beginning of April of 2010. Yeah. So, you know, that means it's going to be like that last week of March is when it probably comes out. I think it's, well, I think it's actually April 9th or April 6th or something like that. The the schedule is different now that it's the trade paperbacks instead of the mass markets, which is weird. Yes. So hold that thought, trade paperbacks. I want to touch on that, but let's look at the cover here for uh, Available Light by Dayton Ward. And I do see the Enterprise-E on there and some other ships, which I can't tell what kind of ships those are. Do you have any idea? Well, if there are any fans of Babylon 5 out there, the big one kind of looks like a Vorlon ship, which, uh, you know, to give you kind of an idea of what it looks like. And the little ones, if you look at them closely, they're actually the same CGI model as the Romulan drone ship from Enterprise, those ones that project a holographic field, which are actually a reuse of a Voyager alien ship from the episode, the fight. So that model's had a long history. 
Well, the cover is very colorful, I would have to say. I see some reds and purplish and blues and greens and grays, and it actually looks very, I, I don't know, it's almost like I want to say like something I saw in a haunted house in an amusement park. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I know that sounds odd, but that's like what it makes it me feel like. It's a, like fluorescent. That's what I'm getting at. Like when you go through like the haunted house or something at an old amusement park and, it, and all the lights are out and things are fluorescent, mm, like they have a okay. light or like a black light on them. That's almost what it like comes across to me as. Oh, I get that. Yeah. Um, the nebula in the background, I think those are done by Ali Rees. Uh, they're, you know, those have been on a lot of the recent novels and just absolutely gorgeous. Lots of color, like you said. And uh, I think the overall cover, I could be wrong, was dug- done by Doug Drexler. Ooh, nice. Love his work. Well, we also have a synopsis here. So, Dan, I know how much you like to read them. Would you like to read this one? Section 31, the covert organization which has operated without accountability in the shadows for more than two centuries has been exposed. Throughout the Federation, the rogue group's agents and leaders are being taken into custody as the sheer scope of its misdeeds comes to light. Now Starfleet Command must decide the consequences for numerous officers caught up in the scandal, including Admirals William Ross, Edward Jellicoe, Alina Necheyev, and Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who, along with many others, are implicated in the forced removal of a Federation president. Meanwhile, deep in the distant, unexplored region of space known as the Odyssean Pass, Picard and the crew of the Starship Enterprise must put aside personal feelings and political concerns as they investigate a massive, mysterious spacecraft. Adrift for centuries in the void, the ship is vital to the survival of an endangered civilization which has spent generations searching for a world to sustain what remains of its people. Complicating matters is a band of marauders who have their own designs on the ancient ship, with only the Enterprise standing in their way. Ooh, exciting. Indeed. (laughs) No, that actually does sound good. I like how it touches on Section 31 uh, and where we are in this uh, novel timeline with that, and then it adds in some, like, the unknown exploration aspects of Star Trek into it. And talk about good timing for us, the fact that we're reading the A Time To series right now, which is where a lot of these things stem from that, they'll be exploring in this novel. So that's really cool. Yeah. What great it is because we will be done the, a time two series before this novel comes out. So yeah, you would almost think that we knew this and we could plan it, but guess what people were not that good. We did not know. (laughs) We're just retroactively that good that you can (laughs) suspect time travel. I think that might've been involved. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Exactly. We, we can do that. Uh, which plays into the feature when we get to that, which again, I mentioned earlier is the war of the prophets. It's the deep space nine book two, book three, which is going to be part of our feature. I forgot to mention that earlier, but now I want to talk about how this book coming out in April, which is a trade paperback and not the normal paperbacks we've gotten before. So the asking retail price of this is $16. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a little pricier for sure. It's going to, put a hit in the wallet unfortunately and greg cox has a book coming out the month before in march and Mm. it's also 
$16. Yeah. So it's pretty clear they're moving from the mass market paperbacks to the trade paperbacks on an ongoing basis. So the last few discovery novels have been trade paperbacks. If you're wondering what those look like, they're taller and, and larger format and a little pricier, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, typically the mass market trade paperbacks in the U S have been seven ninety nine, and now we jump to $16. So it looks like this new deal that was done that we've been waiting for is actually going to cost us more twice as much to buy a book. It does look, and, and I mean, this is kind of mixed news. Um, I guess you could look at it as good news if you're thinking about the bottom line. It looks as though there are going to be fewer novels coming out per year uh, at this higher price. So, um, you know, because we don't get one, for example, in February, and I think there's fewer novels throughout the rest of 2019 than there would be in a typical year where we had one coming out per month. So, you know, it might balance out a little bit more. I don't think it's exactly half, but, you know, the price difference per year for Star Trek novels might be around the same, a little bit more, uh, but you are getting fewer novels though, which that does kind of suck. There is the price increase. I did some research. I went to Amazon and for available light, I saw it marked down from 16. It was a little above $14 and the ebook, the Kindle edition, I think it was around, I think 11 or 1199, something like that. So I think you can get these books a little cheaper. But I will say that I've been actually impressed because the novels at $7.99, the mass paperbacks, have remained at that price for at least 15 years. Because I remember when I was on a Yahoo Star Trek book club back like 2002, 2003, everybody was complaining how it went up a dollar from $6.99 to $7.99. But it has stayed there. So they've kept the prices low for a long time. I think it just kind of caught up to us now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. It's, uh, you know, if, if you think about how much you pay for other forms of entertainment and that sort of thing, this is actually not that huge a deal. And I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm saying this to a lot of people that are probably going to be really annoyed by the price increase. And I don't mean to lessen that. It does suck when you've gotten used to paying a certain price and then all of a sudden you're asked to pay more. But at the same time, I think that the work that we've been getting from the Star Trek authors has been of a high enough caliber that I personally think it's worth it. You kind of have to do that calculus for yourself and decide if it's worth it. But, you know, on my recommendation, I think it is. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I mean, it's it's an increase that I'm willing to pay. So I'm not complaining. Um, but, yeah, I know others, you know, it, it's going to bother them. And But, you know, some of you I know go to the library, so it's not that big of a deal. Anyway, there might be ways to work around it. I don't know. So, anyway, we're at least getting more Star Trek books. That's all I care about. Absolutely. <laughs> Me too. And speaking of more Star Trek books, we're also getting another Star Trek comic. This is pretty exciting from IDW. They announced that they're doing a new Jean-Luc Picard story set 20 years before The Next Generation. And this is part of a series of IDW comics are coming out called 2020. Not like the year 2020, but like in 2020 vision. And the idea behind it is that IDW is celebrating their 20th anniversary next year. 
And so they're releasing different one-shot comics, and Star Trek Next Generation is one of them. So it's in honor of their 20th anniversary, and the store, this story takes place 20 years prior to the next generation. So that's where this play on 2020 comes in. And I'm excited to say that because this takes place 20 years, it's on the Stargazer, and the story is going to be written by Peter David, who we haven't gotten anything from him in quite a long time. Very popular Star Trek writer. And uh, J.K. Woodward is going to do the art. So I'm, like, stoked for this. Yeah, I'm very excited for this as well. Uh, I love... Peter David's work, obviously, and especially his work in comics. If you haven't read any Peter David comics, you're missing out because he's a great comic writer. And J.K. Woodward's art, I mean, I'm on record saying I absolutely love his work. It's that kind of watercolor style. If you remember the City on the Edge of Forever comics or the Mirror Broken comics, I absolutely love his work. So I'm really excited to see this. And we also did get a bit of a tease of the cover art for it. I believe that's what this is, the cover art. And I'm actually not sure who the artist for this is because I don't think it's J.K. Woodward who did the cover here. I could be wrong, but it's very much not his style. But uh, it's very cool. It is. And one thing that caught my eye, Picard and Jack Crusher are there, are in the maroon uniforms and... As we saw Jack Crusher on The Next Generation in the holodeck talking to Wesley, he doesn't have the black belt with the Starfleet insignia on it, and he doesn't on this cover, but Jean-Luc does. Do you, do you notice anything else amiss about Picard's uniform at all? I'm curious. It doesn't look like he has the captain rank on there. Exactly. Yeah, he's got the ensign rank pin on there which me which makes me think is they used him from tapestry as the as the model for the uniform uh and of course he was an ensign in that and had the belt so i i think that's what they did here and maybe the artist just isn't aware of what the rank pins are or what they mean but uh yep yeah, he's looks like he's an ensign in command of the stargazer commanding lieutenant jack crusher <laughs> yeah and the also the uh, it's not the communicator badge from Next Generation. I know from Jack Crusher on the holodeck he had that. Mm-hmm. So this, this is the old be, style, yeah, set just before that or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And also in this picture we get Beverly Crusher, uh, possibly not Crusher yet. Maybe Beverly Howard. Maybe that she's not married to Jack yet. But this is really cool. The the outfit she's wearing. Uh, a friend of mine online, Will Wynn, pointed this out, and he has a great eye. It's the uniform she's wearing is actually from the Playmates Cadet Beverly Crusher action figure. Oh, cool. <laughs> Which is hilarious. I love it. That's so awesome. I was looking at that thinking, I feel like maybe I've seen this somewhere before. So I was thinking it was maybe a uniform that was borrowed from like another series or something, but that's what it is, the action figure. (laughs) Which I thought, what a great little attention to detail. That's so incredible. I love it. (laughs) See, I love that stuff. Ah, that just made my day right there. (laughs) That's so cool. So yeah, this is coming out January of 2019. So we're just less than three months away by the time we get this so uh or about three months depending when in january it comes out so uh i guess we'll be getting this one and we'll be talking about it here on literary treks so that's pretty exciting but you know what we have a comic we are going to talk about on today's episode 
It's a comic that you've been waiting for all your lives, ladies and gentlemen. It's Star Trek versus Transformers. (laughs) Yep, this is definitely a thing that exists. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, what's really great, if somebody's going to do something like this, they made it look like the Saturday morning cartoons of the days when Transformers was on TV as a cartoon series, Saturday mornings and Star Trek, the animated series. And it's a nice blend of the two and the animation, the artwork, I should say, looks like the animation from the original series and from the Transformers cartoon. And I have to tell you, this makes it so much fun. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun. It's kind of one of those things that you just you can't take too seriously, right? I mean, I don't think anyone and I mean, I may be wrong. Maybe there are people out there that are trying really hard to fit this into their personal continuity and make it fit into canon. But that way lies madness, folks. Don't do it. This is just purely <laughs> fun. <laughs> and I know sometimes Star Trek fans aren't known for just being able to sit back and let things happen and just relax about how well it fits in or whatever. But trust me, do it for this because yeah, this is just a lot of fun. And um, I I think I'm one of the few kids of the eighties who never really watched transformers or got into it, but I enjoyed this. It was just fun. (laughs) I I totally agree. Uh, I'm I'm older than you, but not by much. Well, maybe, but anyway, I'm older (laughs) than you, but I was, so when Transformers was out in the eighties, I was in the early eighties in high school. And then I was in college starting in the mid eighties. So I really wasn't watching stuff like this, but I knew kids were that were younger than me. I, I would hear about it all the time. So I've never really sat down and watched a Transformers cartoon, but I will say that to read this, you don't need to, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. To me, at least issue number one feels very much like a Star Trek animated series tale. It just so happens to be that the species or the the aliens that are attacking this planet in this comic are these Transformers. And the crew doesn't know anything about them. And so if you don't know anything about Transformers, your perception is the same as the crew's. Why are these 20th century looking vessels flying around and shooting things? And why is there a a truck? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And to me, it works. And I mean, you do get for for people who are you know paying attention you get do you do get little easter eggs in there i liked spock you know looking at these things saying i think there's more to these than meets the eye (laughs) and i mean you know if you have any knowledge of like the transformers theme song and all that stuff it's you know (laughs) oh and you get sulu saying oh my as well oh i love that part so yeah they beam down (laughs) the planet and they see all these 20th century vessels attacking the planet and Sulu's line is, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and Imres is in here, and Eric, so you have that. I mean, it really, the the animation, it looks like the animation from the uh, animated series. It definitely does. And when, uh, you know, I'm much more uh, versed in the animated Star Trek series than I am anything to do with Transformers. So, you know, when... Kirk's like, let's all run over here. And they all start running. I hear in my mind, like the, just the music from the animated series. <laughs> exactly. And the way they're running looks like it's from the animated series. Yeah, exactly. It's good fun. <laughs> it is. It, it's good fun. But again, it works. I mean, it, it, to me, it feels like it's a tale from the animated series and these aliens just happen to be 
Transformers. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're a Transformers and Star Trek fan, I think you're going to love this thing. Indeed. And uh, yeah, we'll be following the rest of the series, of course, as it comes out. This is just issue number one uh, in this one. They're just setting things up. And I think by the end, you have to know just the basics. Uh, Autobots, good. Decepticons, bad. Decepticons teaming up with the Klingons. Things are going to get bad. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's one thing I wanted to mention. Yeah, the animated Klingons are in here with their purple vests, which is mm-hmm. cool. Which is fun, for sure. <laughs> oh, and I like how Jim Kirk asks McCoy to uh, check on the injured Transformer. And he's like, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. <laughs> Classic Star Trek. I do love the little bit of banter, too. And Kirk says, this isn't any simple machine, Bones. It spoke to us. And McCoy says, so what? Lots of computers talk. In fact, sometimes I wish they'd shut up. <laughs> Yeah, so definitely one to check out. So as Dan said, we'll talk about the other issues as they come out. So issue one's out. Go get it. Check it out. It's fun. Indeed. All right. Well, I say we transform ourselves and go into the feature. Autobots roll out. (laughs) I think that's the right line. Well, it is for this show. I'm such a bad 80s kid. So for today's feature, we transform over to Deep Space Nine, Millennium, The War of the Prophets. This is book two of three. And two episodes ago, we talked about book one. And so I just want to start things off about book two and the fact that I'm going to go ahead and call out spoilers because if you haven't read book one, where book two picks up, would be a spoiler for book one. So if you haven't read book one, then tune out. If you have read book one, but you haven't got to book two yet, and you just kind of want to hear some things, I think you're fine for maybe the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes of this just to get an idea of how the book sets up. But then we'll really go into deeper discussion about the novel. Does that sound good? Yeah, I think so. And if you haven't read any Star Trek novels at all and are just listening for the heck of it, you're kind of weird, but... Welcome. We're happy to have you. <laughs> you think they're weird? I think we're weird. We we read like hundreds of these. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> well, this series is written by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, and they're very popular Star Trek novel authors, and they've also written episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, which I was thrilled about when that happened. I was just like, yay, crossover, you know, somebody from the novels is writing a TV series. So that was really cool. And so they're really great authors. And I mean, this series, I'm just going to say right now, I just love this series. So, you know, we're, we're going right into it. So how did, how did we even get here? How do we get to book two? So in the, in the previous book, which is, which was the fall of Tarek Noor. So deep space nine, the station was destroyed by the red orbs of Galbador, which opened a new wormhole on the station. And so, The Defiant got pulled in and then pulled out or whatever, and we thought that the crew and the ship may have been destroyed, but then we find out the end of book one that they were thrown 25 years into the future, into the year 2400, and they fall into a battle led by Captain Thomas Riker. Boom. That's how this setup is. So, Dan, coming into this novel, what did you think 
was going on? Why, where, why do you think Thomas Riker was there? What, what was your first impressions? Well, I mean, I knew it had something to do with Bajor and the Bajoran system and stuff because of the, the uniform that Thomas Riker is described as wearing. And, you know, I thought maybe it was some kind of big prophets versus Pa Wraiths thing that had engulfed the galaxy. And it, it just, it was a really cool setup because you're kind of left wondering, you know, WTF, what's going on? This is crazy. You know, there were 20 years, 20 years, something like that. 25 years. We're 25, way in the future. Yeah. yeah. We're way in the future from where we're supposed to be and things are crazy. And, and I think immediately the impulse would be, we have to get back. We, you know, our leaving has changed the timeline and, Things are screwed up because of that. We have to get back. And what's interesting is there's some discussion of that, but that kind of ends up being a non-starter for various and complicated scientific reasons that various characters get into, which was a lot of fun. Kind of felt almost like, I'm just as a little aside here, it kind of felt like when really hardcore Star Trek fans start talking about, you know, what's possible in Star Trek and technology and that kind of thing. We get this discussion between Dax and Bashir and Jake about whether or not they can go back in time and fix things or not. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Let's let's keep that pinned up to get to that. I, I want to talk about that whole changing the timeline and the future and going back in the past and such and such. You know, I read these books when they first came out, and book two came out in, I think it was March of 2000, and I don't remember that much about it, except that I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't remember all the details, and now reading the book, I think I remember why, because there is so much detail that comes into this, There's so many twists and turns. I mean, this is an alternate future. So when book one ends and Thomas Riker is there, I couldn't remember exactly what his part was and, and what was going to happen. I, I was like, gosh, I can't remember, but... I remember there was a whole bunch of things happening and they fall into this war of the prophets and, and there's just so much that starts to go on. So I think it's a really cool setup when you go from book one to book two, because it's almost like starting a whole new book because in book one, it's taking place during season six of deep space nine. And then we start book two, 25 years in the future. And it's an alternate future than what we know is going to play out because the station was destroyed at the end of book one, which we know the station wasn't destroyed at that period of time. So we know we're getting an alternate take on the future. And then when we go to book three, we're spoiler. Well, it's not really a spoiler, but we kind of go back into a past. So, you know, it's almost like three different time periods between three different books. So I like how that played out. I kind of had a feeling of all good things. Like this is kind of the all good things of Deep Space Nine, because in that one, Picard's jumping between three different time periods. And one of them is 25 years in the future where things have, you know, they're not as crazy go nuts as they are in this novel. But, you know, things are different than how we would eventually see them play out. We don't know that they won't turn out like that at the time. But, you know, we have... Deanna's died and, and all this stuff's happened and Riker's a jerk, you know, <laughs> all this stuff. So it, it kind of made me think of that. Like this is the, this is the ultimate adventure to set deep space nine back on the right path. And I, I don't know, it, it felt like this would have been a really cool series finale. You know, I really liked the series finale we got, but this would have been a neat story to wrap up the story of DS9 as well. Yeah, any of those episodes that take place in the TNG future, 
I was picturing those uniforms and those insignias in a sense. I mean, it does, these are going to be a little different insignias, but yeah, I kind of had that vision in my mind of, of what you're talking about. So let's go ahead and talk about that future. So Star Trek has dealt with many alternate futures so many times. Now in this one, we see the universe and it is just literally just a few days from Armageddon. And that is called the Day of Ascendancy. And the Federation has fallen into despair and disrepair. Now, Earth has been destroyed. Cardassia, not just their planet, but any planets in the Cardassian Empire are gone. And the War of the Prophets is raging on. And this is between the Bajoran Ascendancy and the remnants of Starfleet. There's a lot going on here. And I have to say that it took a moment to kind of put things together because... Riker shows up on the USS Opaka. Well, I don't even know if it's USS. It's the Opaka Starfleet vessel. And then we've got three other Starfleet-like vessels that show up. And those three vessels are fighting Riker's vessel. So it looks like Starfleet's fighting one another with the Defiant there. And then we get a Klingon bird of prey show up. And it seems like who's on what side and who is what at this point. Yeah, it's. I found it very confusing to start with. And I, I remember back when we were talking about the fall of Tarok Nor, about how they drop you in the middle of the action and you're kind of like, I don't know what's going on. And it really mirrors how the characters are feeling. The characters are really like, I don't know what's going on, what's happening here, all this stuff. And I feel like this book does it again. And this time you're of course, with the, in the position of the defiant crew members who have come forward in time, dropped into the middle of the situation with no idea what's going on. And you kind of have to suss out who the major players are and what has happened in the last 25 years. And we get little pieces of information just as the defiant crew does that kind of help us to piece things together. But at the same time, you know that you're not being told everything and I, again, I like how that mirrors how the Defiant crew is because, you know, half of them end up going with Riker and the Ascendancy and half of them end up with the actual Starfleet, we find out, who are the remnants of Starfleet. And they're each told what's going on, but from the perspective of the people they're with. So, you know, and both of them feel like we're not getting the whole story here. What's the whole story? Because... Each of us is being, you know, we're, we're being hidden from the truth. We don't, we're not getting all of it. Yeah. It has that element of, of mystery in a sense, because you're trying to put all these puzzle pieces together, because as you're saying, you have one ship where the people running the ship, like these Vulcans are explaining what's been going on. But then you hear from like the Klingon ship, something else that's going on. Like you're putting pieces together and you're like, who's the true starfleet and who's the true bad guys and is earth really destroyed or is that a deception and it's it's really kind of weaving through this like what is right what is wrong what we're really what's true what's false i think and and just trying to understand what the setup of this galaxy is at this point i know that i was a bit confused but i went back and kind of skimmed through it again and i was like okay i i think i got a, a I've got all the pieces placed. I think I understand what's happening on. But yeah, even splitting our crew among two different ships was even a bit confusing because I had to keep thinking that, no, wait, where's who's Bashir with again? And wait, who's Kira with right now? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Did you have that issue too? 
A little bit, yeah. I sometimes had to flip back and go like, oh, okay, these guys are with these ones and they're talking about, you know, how the quarters are in disrepair. Is this actually Starfleet or is this the other guys? Oh no, this is the other guys. They're with Starfleet. Okay. Oh no, Nog's here. Okay. So they're, they're with Starfleet. Yeah. Okay. And, and it, it got a little bit, um, I, I was kind of questioning my reading skills a couple times because I'm like, oh man, I don't usually have this much trouble. That's not a failing of the book. I don't think it's just a very dense, very complicated story um, that sometimes I felt got away from me a little bit. But yeah, I, I'm in the same boat for sure. Uh, that's why I kind of went back and started reading through some things again. But I also feel like it works because we're figuring things out just like our defiant crew is figuring things out. Like what is happening? I mean, if you are propelled 25 years into your future, it's going to take you a while to kind of put the pieces together and figure out what the current setup of things are. You know, what, where is your country at this point in the future and, and what do they represent? I mean, things change. <laughs> so. <laughs> It kind of, it felt a little bit to me also like when Worf's jumping between different quantum realities in that TNG episode parallels, you know, the Bajorans attacked the whatever. He's like, the Bajorans? It's like, yeah, ever since they defeated the Cardassians in the occupation, it's been blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow. You know, you kind of have to just play a little bit of catch up and like, what's the current state of affairs? What's going on? Who are the players and, and how do they all fit together? Yeah, I well, and this is a good point to go to that topic about the future and going into the past that we put a pin in, which you mentioned earlier, because parallels that episode about Worf was actually mentioned in this book because there's a question that Jake brings up and it's like, well, wait, if, if the future has changed and we were propelled 25 years in the future, why don't we just go 25 years back and fix it, fix the timeline? Well, it's apparently not that easy. And so Jadzia Dax is trying to explain to Jake how it works to go back in time and the fact that they didn't do a slingshot around a star or a sun that they can't slingshot back because you have to basically follow that same arc or path that you created in the first place to get a precise return and that's not there now. Yeah, I, I feel like that was a bit of a retcon. I don't think that's ever quite been... <laughs> Because, like, how does the initial time travel happen in the first place, then, if you can't just... And I mean, I guess they they kind of say, like, because if you don't follow that same path back, you then just create a parallel um, timeline and you don't actually return to your own timeline or something like that. And it gets very complex. But, for example, in the episode Assignment Earth, when the Enterprise traveled back in time to do research, they didn't originally... Like, that was the first bit of time travel they did. They hadn't, they didn't follow a path to, I don't know. It just got really confusing. No, I can see that. I, I guess it worked a little for me because if you're going to travel back in time, if I said, okay, I'm going to travel back 25 years into the past, I may get back 25 years, but it could be, you know, 24 years and six months, or it could be 25 years and three months. It's not exactly 25 years, but somewhere maybe close to that. 
Well, they're trying to work it so it's fairly precise that they get there right before things change. And so they could overshoot it or undershoot that because they're not following the same path. So to go into the future or the past doesn't maybe have to be as precise, but when you're trying to return to an exact moment in time, that's where it becomes difficult. But going to the retconning you were saying about, I also love how they explain that, well, and if you go back in the past, sometimes you change the existing timeline. Sometimes you create an alternate timeline and it's like, well, wait, when does, when does it actually <laughs> change the existing timeline? It's almost like it's arbitrary as to what could happen. Yeah. It almost felt like the story should have maybe steered clear of getting that technical about it and just had some reason why they couldn't do it. You know, that what that was more, related to the story rather than fundamental physics of the universe that don't make a lot of sense, but it's okay. I, I, I understand they had to have some reason why that wouldn't work. So, yeah. all right, I'm on board. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. But then I feel like later they con- contradict that. Like, they, they could. They do, don't they? <laughs> I, I was like, but didn't you say? <laughs> oh, well. Oh, like Janeway, my head's hurting thinking about time travel right now. I need a yeah. cup of coffee. I'm just picturing two O'Briens sitting on the edge of the bed saying at the same time, I hate temporal mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then we also have an interesting villain, I'm going to say, in this book. Dan, did you know mm-hmm. the emissary is the villain of this book? Uh, he's yep. the true emissary. The true emissary of the true prophets. <gasps> Ooh, is that Cisco? It is not Cisco. Cisco is apparently the false emissary. Oh, oh my. Indeed. (laughs) If you see the cover of this book, you see the true emissary on the cover of the book. And uh, this is one thing. I have seen these books for a long time. This is my first time reading them. But I've always been really curious about this because we see Wayun on the cover wearing Bajoran Vedic robes and with a Bajoran earring and red eyes and i'm like okay what's going on here so yeah we learned that in this timeline weyun has taken his place as the true emissary of the prophets the true prophets i should say and those are the pa wraiths now this again this story does what it does a lot and it gets very complicated because these pa wraiths are ones that were not imprisoned in the fire caves those pa wraiths are still bad, I guess. Yes. And they, they're the Costa Mojin, right? They're the, the ones that Ducat is in control of in season seven or being controlled by in season seven, I guess. And uh, spoilers a little bit, I guess. Yeah, let's Ducat, go ahead and say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll say spoilers now. Ducat does show up and he's, he's old, crazy, white haired, evil smelly apparently to god who is still representing the fire cave paw wraiths the costamogen just to you know throw a wrench in in all the works here and we've got two wormholes we've got the bajoran wormhole the no the one we know and love that blue one and then this one that was created at the destruction of deep space nine which was the red wormhole and wayun plans to bring the two wormholes together which will according to prophecy destroy the universe and that's his whole plan he's going to bring about the apocalypse kind of crazy i do have <laughs> to say so but kind of fun too at the same time yeah. uh, 
you, you know, the two pod rays and all that. So there, it, it's there's this whole history of how the the prophets were all one, and they always saw things as perfection. Everything was done correctly, and then there was a group of the prophets that wanted to basically go and check out, I guess, kind of check out things in the universe and, and also acknowledge that things maybe aren't always perfect. And those became the Pa Wraiths. And then the universe lost its perfection because of this. And correct me if I'm wrong on all this, because yeah, it's a bit confusing. I'm trying to go back in my head and remember all this, (laughs) but then the ones that went into the fire caves, I guess they were kind of viewed as, the ones that kind of wimped out <laughs> on the return and then the other parades returned back to the other prophets, but there was a battle between them. And so thus creating the two different wormholes. That sounds about right. <laughs> it's very complicated, but you know, basically you bring it, bring, bring it down to the basics. We've got two wormholes, got the prophets and the parades. Cisco represents the prophets or the false prophets and Wayun represents the Paw Wraiths. They're going to bring the two wormholes together and end the universe, basically. Or create... Now, from Wayun's perspective, what is this doing? Because I can't quite remember. It's going to like make the universe a, a paradise for the Paw Wraiths or something? I'm not sure. I can't remember why he's doing this whole thing. Yeah, essentially, it's it's almost like bringing the whole universe into heaven in a sense, you know, that there's so much imperfection and different religions and the way even Bajoran see things and read texts that he are determined to be false. But once this temple opens and brings all the people of the universe through it, all truth now becomes reality. Everybody has a sense of what is real and it's like they're in paradise now. It's like correcting the universe by sucking it all in. It, be, it will destroy the universe, but from Wayun's perspective, it's actually the golden gates to welcome everyone to the truth of everything. Right. So he's crazy. Got it. Okay. Yes, absolutely he is and the reason he's this way is because as he was fighting in the dominion war he uh brought his ship into the this red orb wormhole and was propelled into the delta quadrant and there he met this other alien species and he basically has now been reprogrammed. He doesn't look at the founders as being gods anymore because he has discovered new gods from the true prophets, making him then the true emissary to return back to the Alpha Quadrant to correct things in the universe by bringing them in through the wormhole. Mm -hmm. And he, even at one point, Odo is kind of testing him and Wayun like backhands Odo. (laughs) Like he does not follow the founders anymore he is he has broken that spell and he was even kind of giddy he backhanded odo and he's like "Ooh, i didn't think i could do that that's cool (laughs) and he even had an inhibitor that would allow odo to be able to change shapes and be a it made him more of a solid when he was near him so odo couldn't do anything yeah exactly (laughs) that was an interesting scene because i i love i've always loved 
the dynamic between Wayun and Odo, how Wayun sees him as this God and Odo is just rolls his eyes about the whole thing. And to see that kind of subverted and turned on its head, I thought was really interesting. Right. Cause Wayun now sees himself almost as a God and Odo being a lesser being to him. And it's also very important for Wayun, who is this true emissary to have Cisco there because prophecy shows that when the false emissary, AKA Cisco returns from the past or reappears from the dead, however you want to look at it, that's when the gates will open. And that's why Cisco is needed because now that Cisco is here, now the prophecy could fulfill itself. So it's important for the true emissary to have the false emissary there. And then the false emissary will be shown the truth of everything once he is brought into the temple. Yeah. <laughs> Can I hear a hallelujah? <laughs> oh man, there is so much going on in this novel that it just, it, it turns my head. It spins my head around a few times because discussing this novel, I know there's going to going to be so much we end up leaving out because there's just so much going on here. And this whole dynamic between Cisco and Wayun, it's, interesting to me because at this point in the series Cisco has kind of accepted himself as the emissary of the prophets but you still like he still has this resistance to you know thinking of himself as the emissary and really fully embracing it but in the face of Wayun and this threat he kind of has to like he absolutely has to represent what the prophets are and and that sort of thing but at the same time, he's so totally out of his element and is, is just as lost and confused as his crew is. He doesn't know exactly how this is all supposed to turn out. And I wonder if some part of Cisco thinks maybe Wayun is right and maybe the prophets aren't the true prophets. You know, you, you've got to think he's he's got some questions, too, because things are really lining up with prophecy in an eerie way, just as they do on the prophet side of things. So. I don't know. I, I'd be really confused if I was in Cisco's place. And then there's the character, and I don't recall her name. She's the Bajoran officer. We talked about her on the last episode. Uh, Ari, um, Commander Arla Rees. Arla Rees. So she yeah. she did not grow up on Bajor, so she does not follow the Bajoran religion. And there's a. I know we questioned last time why would this character be created for this book? We have the the Deep Space Nine regular crew, why are we introducing this one? And I still don't know if it's really clear if she has a major part in this overall story until we get to book three, but she's really helped a lot in this book as being the counter attack to Kira. So when Kira's talking about Bajoran texts and Bajoran religion, this commander's questioning her on that or or debating her on that and so you're getting the two different sides of you know is this religion true is it not are these aliens are they wormhole uh prophets and so we we get so th through these arguments back and forth to the point that this com bajoran commander starts to come around to the religion in a sense she's starting to believe things and i think it gets to what you're saying where cisco may have accepted his role as emissary and looking at the alien wormhole aliens as prophets but yet questioning maybe that to the point where the commander's questioning 
her own beliefs that this religion isn't true, but maybe it is. There's, I don't know. It's just so much going on. I was a little confused as to what happened with her character because they're trapped. She and Cisco are trapped at one point on Deep Space Nine, which has been recreated, I guess. Uh, no, sorry. Actually, it turns out it's Empok Nor, they find out later, has been towed to the Bajoran system to replace Deep Space Nine. That was it. And so they're trapped on board the station with Dukat and this army of the Grigari, is that right? Comes to life. And, yep. Yeah. And they're, they're being attacked and they get rescued by Weyoun. And then we find out that Commander Arla Rees was taken over by a Pa Wraith at some point or something like that. And then like, I, I just got a little confused as to where she ended and the paw wraith began. And like, because she was almost taunting Cisco during the, the thing on Impacnor and all this stuff. Like I found that part really confusing and, and not sure what's going on there. I was really enjoying it and really into it, but I was still like, it was one of those things where, you know, there's a lot of things happening and then the truth of what's happening is revealed later on. And you're like, Oh, okay. But when did that happen? And how did that happen? It was just, it was very all over the place. Well, let's talk about the Grigari aliens. I don't think there's a whole lot to say about them, but they are on the station with, uh, well, with Dukat, right. And not even with Wayun, I think, or at one point, I don't know. Well, let me back up. So, <laughs> When Wayun returned back in through the 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 wormhole, he brought this army of Gregari with him from the Delta Quadrant. Now they um, they live in the Beta Quadrant near the Delta Quadrant border, and they have like the nanites in them or whatever, and they can kind of reconstruct themselves. I mean, it almost sounds like Borg in a sense, but they can take like mechanical parts with flesh and form them together and regenerate. And I don't know what I'm talking about, but the nanotechnology, <laughs> but something weird like that, but they're almost like mechanical or almost like zombie looking creatures. Does that sound the, like what you got the impression of too? <laughs> yeah. Especially in that scene on Empok Noor, that's kind of what I was picturing, like very zombie-ish, creatures i guess yeah well what's interesting to me is i just did a little brief research into it and these alien gregari were part of the novel federation which was written by judith and garfield reeve stevens now we haven't oh, covered man. federation yet here on the show we've talked about doing it i have read it too and i do not remember that i don't remember either <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time I, since I've read that one, but yeah, they are the alien race that's in the Federation novel. Huh. Wow. I've read that and I've reviewed it on my website, but it sounds like we might have to reread that. <laughs> now, I don't know what part they play, if it's a big part in that novel or not. I don't recall because, like I said, it's been forever since I've read it, but they do play a part in that novel. They were also featured in a DS9 video game called The Fallen. So they have been used quite a bit by the Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens team and also introduced in that DS9 game. And also, real quick, they were briefly used with the Klingon Empire in a Mirror Universe novel, Rise Like Lions. 
Wow, that's crazy because I've also read and reviewed that one as well. And uh, I do not remember that. That's crazy. You might have to go back and read that. I think so. <laughs> so there's a little bit of tri- trivia on the Gregari. So it makes me... Now, I never read uh, the Mirror Universe novel, I don't think. so. Uh, but yeah, Federation, a long time ago I did. So I think we're going to cover Federation sometime soon. It's not on the schedule. The two Mirror Universe novels that David Mack did as well, um, I, I think they would make a couple of really good episodes if we do want to cover those someday. Uh, and Rise Like Lions was really, really good. So just a thought. <laughs> All right. Just might happen. Everybody get ready. Uh, but again, <laughs> not anytime soon because we got the schedule played out for the rest of 2018. So maybe in 2019 we'll see it. So, Dan, you were talking about being on the station, and we have Weyun, we have Dukat, and Dukat represents the paw wraiths of the caves, where Weyun represents the paw wraiths from the wormhole. And they even battle each other. And I think it was Dukat, I can't remember, but I think it's Dukat that, you're right, like, helped the paw wraiths take over Arla Reeve's body temporarily in the fight and then the Gregari are there and of course as I mentioned Weyun brought the Gregari to be the warriors that are fighting for the ascendancy of Bajor <laughs> it just goes on and on they're the ones who destroyed Earth and, and helped destroy the Cardassians so they're a pretty violent uh, species or race but the we, we enter the mere universe into this book just to complicate things more because the idea is to try to stop the Bajoran ascendancy. And how are you going to get to the Bajoran sector without the Gregari and Weyun trying to attack and destroy your ships before you get there? Well, one idea is to bypass them by going into the Mirror Universe, traveling through the Mirror Universe to the Bajoran sector, and then coming out of the Mirror Universe in that sector, surprising the Bajoran ascendancy. And that's where we end up on this station... By the way, this is called the Project Looking Glass by Starfleet. And the Klingon Empire is involved too. But the Klingon Empire was attacked in the Mirror Universe or even prior to, I don't know. Again, I'm starting to get confused. We keep saying we're confused. It's just that there's so much. It's dense. (laughs) I would actually recommend if you read this book to go back and kind of read through it one more time just to make sure you get it all. But then they also had replicators constructed constructed that would bring thousands of people onto transporter pads and deliver them into the mirror universe just in case that if these efforts don't work to stop the Bajoran ascendancy and the universe is going to be destroyed, then you can transport people from our universe into the mirror universe to survive. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. And uh, yeah, this, this, offensive through the mirror universe i thought was a really interesting idea and it kind of made kind of made me wonder why haven't they thought of this before what a great idea (laughs) but this project basically leads to kind of the destruction of the klingon empire basically most of the empire's forces led by martok were wiped out along with much of starfleet which leads them to what we see the remnants of starfleet in this novel so you know it's We say it's complicated and we say there's a lot going on, but if you think about it, there's 25 years worth of history that are kind of 
being dropped really quickly here. So there's going to be all these different things that happen to lead them there. So I think the novel actually did a very good job of kind of condensing that and giving us the Coles notes version or the cliff notes version, I guess, if you're in the, in the United States of what's going on here. Yeah. Like it's a ton of stuff. And, but again, for 25 years, it kind of makes sense. But although I was thinking, if you look at any 25 year period in the Star Trek universe, there hasn't been this much change within 25 years like this was, but there's a lot going on. I mean, earth has been destroyed. Cardassians have been destroyed. The Klingon empire is pretty much destroyed. I mean, everything's like a reset. It, it doesn't look like it used to. I'm sure the Borg have looked at this and said, uh, uh-uh, uh, we're staying out of this. It's too crazy. Well, what's interesting is we learn in this novel that the Federation actually allied with the Borg at one point for an offensive, which I thought was crazy. (laughs) But like, this is a Federation that has, you know, had to really compromise its values and morals. And the fact that they were able to kind of team up with the Borg on an offensive was incredible. One other thing that I really appreciated I was probably about halfway through this novel and I was like, huh, you know, at this point in Deep Space Nine, season, the end of season six, Voyager hasn't made it home, but they would have made it home at some point during this alternate history. And I wonder, like, if that ever comes into play. And sure enough, like the very next chapter after I thought of that, we get Bashir seeing Seven of Nine and the the Voyager's EMH, I believe. And I was like, oh, hey, there we go. That's cool. We've got the uh, just a little bit of an acknowledgement of Voyager coming home and being a part of these events as well. They don't have a huge role. I kind of thought at that point they'd come into the story and, you know, have a big part to play. But it's kind of like, oh, yeah, no, they made it back. They're here. Seven of Nine's there. She taught she, you know, they allied with the Borg and and, um, the doctors there as well. But that's it, you know. We just kind of get an acknowledgement they were there. But I was I really appreciate it because it was one of the things that popped into my head as a question about the alternate history. Yeah, it was a bit of an Easter egg, but it was it really worked because Bashir is learning more things and they learned about this alliance with the Borg and then to be walking around a starship and there is someone who is part Borg walking around, it's part of Starfleet, and there is a holographic EMH walking around as a member of Starfleet. He's like, wow, things have really changed. And from his perspective, he's probably thinking there's probably a bunch of Borg and EMHs walking around all kinds of starships right now. Yeah, exactly. And I was kind of like, oh no, Bashir, she's unique. Don't worry. But uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of funny that the, the picture that it paints for someone who doesn't know about Voyager's history and stuff was kind of interesting. I can't remember, but did Janeway ever show up in this or was referred to? I was trying to remember. I thought for a second while I was speaking just before that she was there, but then I second guessed myself and now I, I, I honestly can't remember. I can't remember <laughs> too, but I'm, I'm the same way. I'm feeling like there was some reference to Janeway at some point. Uh, yeah. Again, there's so much. I think there is. I think there's something about Admiral Janeway in here. Um, but again, it was it, it would be really brief. So. So let's talk about Project Phoenix. We talked earlier about the Mirror Universe, and that was Project Looking Glass. There was another project that was mentioned. It was never really focused on. I think it was, I don't remember the exact name, but it was like Project 
guardian, like the guardian of forever. Right. Yeah. And I, I love these project names because if you're a fan of Star Trek, even though the people they're being told to before they even describe what the project's about, you can kind of infer it. It's like Project Guardian, but that's really classified. We can't talk about that. And you're like, ooh, it has something to do with the Guardian of Forever, doesn't it? That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that got destroyed because of the Grigari destroyed. I don't know if it destroyed the Guardian, but it destroyed the project or the, those involved in, in a war. But uh, so that's off the table. Now we just have Project Phoenix left. And this is being run by two characters. One is Captain Nog. So, yes, Nog is once again a captain in the future. I think it's in his DNA. And <laughs> he's helping Admiral Jean Luc Picard with this project. Now, so many times when it's not a TNG novel, I feel like we have to work Picard into something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but. He has a very small small role in this. It's important, but it's a small role. So you're not going to see a lot of Picard in this. He's there, but he's uh, he's got his syndrome going on where he's kind of losing it. So, mm-hmm. uh, But the Project Phoenix was something that he helped to create, and it's this last-ditch effort to save the universe. And what they did is they developed one of the biggest starships in Starfleet that happens to be a time ship. And this is the vessel that can take them, get this folks, 25,000 years into the past. Because the idea is to go so far back in the past that you're not going to change the timeline because you're not going to run into anybody from Earth, from Vulcan, Cardassian, and especially Bajorans because they really date back very, very far. And so the idea is to go back that far in the past without changing the timeline, but placing bombs essentially in Bahala that would detonate thousands of years into the future at this time, thus preventing the merging of the two wormholes from destroying the Bajoran system. So we're just now days away from this destruction that these two wormholes will cause. So the idea is for thousands of years, these bombs will detonate preventing the wormholes from merging. And I, I thought that the part of the plan that's really cool is apparently they'll be set to explode after the time ship has gone into the past so that it won't be part of the, the time loop that it's in or something like that, which I thought was kind of a neat little uh, way to do it to kind of get around some of the rules they'd imposed on themselves earlier in the book. So it's a really cool idea and it kind of like 25,000 years is an incredible amount of time. So it's, it's neat to think of like these little decisions playing out now that would affect so much of history and we'd see the effects of those now as well. Like there's just something really interesting about that whole setup that I thought was really cool. And this time ship would include our DS nine crew on the ship along with captain Nog and Vash, and they would go to the past but not return. So basically they would have to live their lives that far back into the past and even, you know, start families or whatever. But then they discover that wherever they will, this place that they'll be living, the star system that, because the ship would eventually not be able to return or really go anywhere, I guess. They would have to live in the star system that eventually that star goes supernova and they themselves or their future offspring will die in the supernova 
before the Bajorans and anything else exist. It's, you know, there's little bits of the plan that are, that are hidden and they kind of figure out and that sort of thing. It's, it's really fascinating. The thing that kind of got me towards the end and I didn't see this coming was there's, there's three prophets and by prophets, I don't mean wormhole alien prophets. I mean, people who wrote prophecies in the past who, you know, basically wrote down the entire thing about the three orbs of Jalbador and all the, the stuff that would happen. And it turns out that those three, and correct me if I'm wrong, would end up being Admiral Picard, Captain Nog, and Vash. Yes. Am I right about that? I think that's right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which I did not see that coming. When they yeah, revealed that, I was, I was like, like, oh my gosh, of course, they're the prophets. <laughs> that's brilliant. And I mean, it's almost a trope when it comes to uh, time travel stories. Not necessarily Star Trek, but just, you know, somebody taking the place of somebody famous in the past and, and fulfilling a time loop. But I still didn't see it coming. I thought that was really brilliant. I think back to, there's... um. Have you heard of the, uh, is it, is it the Mozart paradox, I think, or something like that or Beethoven? I don't know. Anyway, there's a guy who's a really big fan of Beethoven, for example, or, or Mozart, one of the two. And, uh, they invent time travel and go back in time with all of the, all of this, um, composer's music and wants to meet this composer and, and, and get to know him and all that sort of thing. And he goes back in time to when he was supposed to have lived and there's no record. Like there's, there's no record of this guy and they can't find him and they, they're waiting. It's like, he should be here now. He should be writing this thing now. And he's like, okay, I've done something. I've screwed it up. So, well, I've got all of his music here, so I'm going to take his place and I'll, I'll write it and, you know, release it and all this stuff and take his place. And it turns out that that person was, that composer the whole time but then the paradox comes who originally wrote it then (laughs) (laughs) which i think is brilliant like i love that that idea and that's kind of what happens here is these three become the the three prophets that that wrote these prophecies and i i just I, I love when time travel stories do that. It's almost a cliche at this point. It's kind of a trope that they do it, but it still always just tickles something about me that I'm just like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, no, <laughs> I agree. Because it's like, it makes your head spin in a sense. Like, wait, how is that possible? Could, you know, how could the music be written if he wasn't there to write? But wait, yeah, it's like, yeah, there's paradoxes. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. And that's basically what we kind of get here, even to the point with the, um, the dedication plaque of the USS Phoenix is discovered and is revealed by the uh, Vulcans earlier in the, in the novel. And we find out that the mission failed. (laughs) And so wait, we're going to go back in time and do a mission that ultimately failed, you know, but Nog has some other plans and ideas and gosh, I can't even remember what they are. (laughs) Well, yeah. Cause at first, you feel like he's turned over the starship to the Romulans and, and they're going to do some plan. But then that turns out to have been a fake out. And he, you know, conspires with the defiant people to take the ship back and, and does all this. It's very like, there's so many twists and turns in this plot that, uh, by the end, basically all you have to know is by the end, they're on their way back in time, 25,000 years. Yes, even though they know the mission's going to fail. And I'm sorry, you're right. It was the Romulans that had the plaque, not the Vulcans. But yeah, it's right. uh, 
Yeah, they're going to go the 25,000. Or, no, they're not going 25,000. They're going 25 oh, years, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. No, I, yeah, no I, I was thinking the same thing you until I started saying it out <laughs> loud. I'm like, oh, wait, no, 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 no. They somehow figured out how to go back 25 years. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I need to reread the last chapter again. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And they're, of course, arriving in the Bajoran system just as all these events are culminating. And, uh, you know, Wayun's ready to enact his plan. and and But then Dukat shows up. And it's basically everybody just kind of shows up here right at the end for the climax. And it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy to the point that you have to get a book three to finish this thing off mm -hmm. called Inferno. So does that tell you something right there? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so Dan, what are your final thoughts on the war of the prophets? Well, I'm really glad you uh, encouraged us to read these books and do them on the show because I am enjoying the crap out of these. <laughs> you know, there's, like I said, it sounds like I'm just reading this confused and not sure what's going on, but it's a wild roller coaster of a ride and there's just so much happening, but it's very, and, and I hesitate to use the word because I think it's used improperly a lot these days and overused, but it's epic. Like it's so, there are so many epic things happening and, and by epic, I really do mean spanning centuries and huge consequences and the rise and fall of the universe and all this stuff, which sometimes in Star Trek falls a little flat because sometimes they go to that well a little bit too often, but I feel like it really works in these books. I feel like the stakes are that high and, you know, they're not pulling any punches with this story. They're really just going for it. You know, earth is destroyed and all this stuff has happened. And obviously we know it's all going to get reset somehow but I'm enjoying the ride. I, I can't wait to see how they get there and, and what they do to fix everything. There's a lot of reality in this book, too. I really like things like how Nog has aged and his experiences have jaded him and made him very cynical to the point where Jake, you know, doesn't really recognize his friend anymore. And that would happen. Like these 25 years have been horrific and it would really change you a lot to have lived through them. So things like that, I think, you know, the book, the book deals with very high minded concepts, very huge ideas. But at the same time, when you get down to the small scope of individual characters, the authors handle them very well as well. So it's, it's winning on all of those levels. So yeah, I, I don't do it very often, but I think I have to give this one, uh, yeah, I'm going to say five out of five uh, reanimated Grigari attacking you on Empoknor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I didn't know where this was going to go in the beginning when we were going into these books, but uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, I, I mean, again, when I first read these books years ago, I loved them. I love them now. My wife hears me walking around the house every time I put down the book on, man, I love these books, man. I love these <laughs> books. And, and you're right. I mean, there's, I will say though, when I was reading book two, it is very much like a roller coaster ride and there's so much depth and there's so much complexity and there's so much twists and turns and things happening to the point that it's a little overdone. And maybe I should even say a little overdone. I mean, a lot of it's overdone. 
but it's so good and it's so fun. And I think it is just like a roller coaster. I mean, a roller coaster, you know, it doesn't have to make a turn that tight, you know, or go up a hill that fast, but it's fun when it does, you know, <laughs> so it is yeah. overdone. And so it, it, it kind of goes a little out there at times, but I really enjoy it. I, I love what you're saying about Nog and Jake. That's one thing I was thinking about bringing up and, and I didn't. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I totally agree with you how great that relationship is and, and seeing Nog being older and, and yet they still relate to each other, but there's something different there. And even though Nog has changed, Jake brings the old Nog kind of back and can just can tell when Nog's lying because Nog did this when he was a kid. And I can tell he does the same thing now and as an adult and then even the exploration of some of the individual characters, there's times that the authors take a moment to talk to you about certain Deep Space Nine characters like Bashir. I mean, we got a whole little backstory on Bashir in one of the chapters that talks about how he was a kid and he wasn't all that smart and he didn't do all that well. And there was some girl or something that that he felt uncomfortable with because she was, but anyway, he got augmented and had to adapt himself to being augmented when his parents did that to him. And it was something he always tried to hide. I mean, it's just, there's things in here like that that come up too. So it's not just this linear story of what happens during this war of the prophets, but there's some exploration into these characters. So, I mean, I, I love this book. It's, it's great. I'll read it again. And so if I'm going to read a book again and have this much fun, then I have to give it five out of five days into the ascendancy. Ooh, I like that one. That's a good rating. It's better than my Grigari rating. That's good. Well, it was last <laughs> minute because I was going to do a Grigari rating until you said yours. So, <laughs> Oh, and I actually like yours better. Nice. <laughs> So with all this talk of time travel and that sort of thing, I don't know if we're 25,000 years in the past or 25 years in the past or how far away we are from apocalypse or what's going on. I'm My head is spinning. All I know is, is that we're not reading book three of this book next. We're reading a different book. So again, I have to wait to find out what's going to happen and it might just kill me. It's just a couple episodes coming. You won't have to wait that long, but no, I, I'm with you. <laughs> you know, maybe it would have been good to read these all right in a row, but we do kind of like to mix it up in case nobody's really that into this. You don't have to wait through three episodes to get to a book that you want to hear about. So we kind of, to mix it up. So we spread the love, I guess you could say, but <laughs> you know, what's interesting from my perspective is how much I've enjoyed these books and I'm seeing listeners to the show following along and posting their reviews online. And they seem to really love these books, but I don't really recall hearing many people talk about these books. Like when you hear people talk about Star Trek novels and I never really hear anybody bring these up as being a favorite, but they're ones that I always mention as part of my favorite Star Trek novels. And I'm just surprised I don't hear about them that often. Yeah. I see a little bit of discussion on them on the Trek BBS from time to time. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're ones that always caught my eye, but I just never got around to. It's funny that they kind of fell under the radar for me. And I wonder if maybe that happened with a lot of other readers too. It was just kind of like, oh, I'll get to these sometime. And maybe they just kind of slipped by. So hopefully, you know, these episodes allow people to take another look at them and read them 
like I am for the first time and, you know, fall in love with them just as you did. Yeah. And let us know what you think in the Babel conference on Facebook. We'd love to hear your comments on these books. You know, if you don't like them, I'd love to hear the reason why, because I'm sure they don't appeal to everyone. Cause like we said, they're kind of over the top at times. And so that could really turn some people off. So uh, yeah, let us know. But you know, it's fun talking about 25,000 years to the past and 25 years into the future, or even with the comic book that takes 20 years in the past of next generation, we're all 20 something pasts and futures on this episode, but there's other things we've been talking about here on the network that are today and not in the past. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. If Picard is acting with his heart, why would you tell her no? She needs this, da, da, da. And thinking with his heart over his head, I mean, that's a realistic, I'm sure everyone mm-hmm. can relate to, you know, someone who normally is logical, falls in love especially a workplace romance. And then the dynamic changes so much, especially Mm. when it's someone in authority. Literary Treks. Kai Wynn, I think, in this novel, they got her voice perfect. When her first line, when Sisko goes to meet her and she says something like, Oh, Emissary, I just love being called to the station in the middle of my many important things that I do on the planet. I especially find the many hours that it takes to fly here gives me a great time to, like, meditate and (laughs) reflect on my life. (laughs) Wow, she's so... Oh, that was perfect. Melodic Treks. So nobody's commenting on it. They're just watching it happen. And again, it's like... Ron Jones gets to soar in his score. He doesn't have to like play down to dialogue. It's just like, I'm going to let fly with the orchestra here. And I thought that was a great moment uh, for him in the episode. Warp five. Okay. So to Paul is confronting, uh, the green face guy. Silic. Silic. I was going to say Tuvok. Why was I thinking Tuvok? Tuvok. They both end with a K. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure and hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, please leave us a star rating and written review that helps us rise in the search results for anyone looking for Star Trek book podcasts. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, on YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. And if you'd like to help us keep bringing all these shows to you each and every week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. And, you know, Dan and I have started recording some special little episodes in the Patron Zone. So you can get bonus literary Treks material in there if you're a patron. 
So all this requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. As Bruce mentioned earlier, the best place to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have a bookshelf with all of our previously covered books as well as what we're currently reading. You'll find that section there so you'll know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics that we review here on Literary Treks. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brian Shane Matala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not trying to get to work and bypass traffic by going through the mirror universe and coming back out at your workplace, where can people find you? That's brilliant. I really, you know, I just hope that you know, there's not any Terran empire people stabbing me in the back on the other side, but otherwise that sounds like a great idea. Um, you can find me on, Twitter tweeting from the mirror universe. I don't know if they're on the same network or not though, but my username on Twitter is at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R A T S. You can also find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats productions talking about star Trek. And of course on in the Babel conference, uh, I don't post a lot there, but I am lurking a lot. So I am reading everything that's on the Babel conference, even if I'm not posting all the time. And Bruce, when you're not adjusting your mission parameters to travel back in time 25 years and stop the War of the Prophets before it starts, where can we find you? You can find me dreaming that I could rewind 25 years so I could be 25 years younger right now. But since I can't do that, you will find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the little underline and then Rex. So please follow me there. You can also find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, where we're reviewing the new episodes of Star Trek Short Treks and then eventually Star Trek Discovery Season 2. So we try to do that either in the night of or the night after a new episode premiere. So it's a live show and you can participate on YouTube in our live chat. So that's a whole lot of fun. And apparently I might be on an upcoming episode of Warp 5 real soon. So... We'll see about that. So it'll be my first time ever if, if that all happens. So check that out too. And uh, I'm also doing stuff on the Star Wars Report podcast. So you can check that out too. And you can find me doing the same thing Dan does in the Babel Conference, lurking around and occasionally posting a comment. You know, Bruce, if I was 25 years younger, I'd be 11. I don't know if I, I want that. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Well, since my birthday was yesterday, if I was 25 years younger, I would be 26. <laughs> oh, see, I, I'd, I'd have to be 10 years younger then to be 26. I, I would be okay with that. As I mentioned, 26. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm older. <laughs> but i'm more immature that's all i don't folks. know that that's true 
<laughs> okay, I'm just as immature as Dan. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. That's all, folks. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs>